So he's just going to say a brief hello, and, and I'll turn over him for just a second here. Thank you, Pastor, and don't ever forget that. <laughs> I like it when our pastors at times live in this delusional world where they think I'm their boss. Uh, it is so good to be here and to give greetings from the Michigan District, the 76 congregations and an additional about 15 organic communities in the Lansing area uh, that today are celebrating the Lord in different ways and in different places. And then across our district, including in this wonderful place of worship, it's so good to be with you. Linda and I came this morning not with any agenda in mind, but we just wanted to hear some good preaching. And pastor, I told pastor that, and he said to me, well, you came probably to the wrong church. <laughs> but I'm with you. I disagree with him. This is a man anointed by God, and pastor, I'm so grateful that in God's good will and providence, he saw fit to bring you to this church and to this district, and I'm grateful for your leadership. Good things are happening across the Michigan district. We've just, uh, well, we're about to complete. Uh, we're in the last week of uh, our annual uh, church year, and good things have been happening. We've seen God work in some wonderful ways in terms of people getting saved and churches being planted. We've just uh, started a new Haitian church in the Lansing area with a wonderful Haitian pastor who has come. We're excited about that. We're excited about the kinds of things pastor just talked about. You know, the Church of the Nazarene is a holiness church. And that means our hearts break for those who are the most broken and those with the greatest needs, those who suffer in so many ways and those who carry a load of guilt that can be relieved. We need to be a church that reaches out to our community through vegetable gardens and through touching men and women, those who have been hurt and broken by abortion or whatever else it might be. This is where we belong, going out and finding those in the greatest need and putting our arms of love around them. So I'm glad to be a part of the Church of the Nazarene today, and I'm glad to be in this place of worship, and I do greet you from your Nazarene family uh, all across the palm part of of, uh, of the state of Michigan. Looking forward to a wonderful message. Already have been worshiping. May God bless you. Well, I meant it when I said he should have gone somewhere else if he's hoping for a good message this morning. Um, I'm doing something that if I were to teach a course on preaching, I would not do. I, I typically stick to one text, and we kind of walk through that one text. Uh, today we're going to look at a couple, and, and don't worry, we're not going to do this forever, but just for the next three weeks. So when I was growing up, my, my dad used to get these catalogs, and these catalogs had everything in them. I mean, everything from patio furniture to sporting goods equipment to electronics to pretty much anything you can think of, this catalog had it all. And this catalog was one that he received through, he, sold, he sells still to this day, carpet for a living. And so carpet manufacturers would, would give you this catalog as an incentive to sell their products. So the more of their products you sold, you would get points. And so the more points you had, the more things you could purchase from the catalog. So my dad would use it as a way to buy stuff that would be cost more than he would normally want to spend. And so I, our first CD player and DVD player came from that catalog. A grill came from that catalog. And so 
we would always take the catalog and dream, right? We would look at that and just think, oh, it'd be so great to have this. But every once in a while, my dad would find a page or two and say, okay, you guys can pick out anything you want on this page or that page. And, and so my brothers and I, because my sister was really too young when this was still happening in our home, and, and we, would, we would pick out something. It was like Christmas all over again. And then there was one year where I, I was playing tennis more competitively than I had in the past, and so I had kind of this not very good tennis racket, and, and my mom and dad knew I needed to replace it, and so I took that catalog, and I found in the page in there, there was a Prince 770 long body tennis racket with an oversized head and a vibration dampener built in and an extra long grip, and I wrote a note next to that tennis racket. I said, Dad... This is all I want for my birthday. It's all I want for, I probably made up some amount of time, which was probably not true. And I said, you'll be the greatest dad ever if I can get this. Well, I have no idea whether my dad had enough points or not, but I know he either paid the difference or he had enough, and he ordered that tennis racket. Well, two days later, I'm at tennis practice, and I still don't know this yet, and, and I see on the court a bunch of guys using the Wilson Hammer 2.0. And I went home that day, and I looked at my mom, and I said, Mom, I don't want that Prince tennis racket anymore. I want, I want this Wilson Hammer racket. And she said, well, Aaron, we can get you that. But your dad has already ordered this Prince one. She said, do you see this note that you left for your dad? World's greatest dad. This is all I want. I played with the Prince Tennis Longbody for three years after that. Um, <laughs> but throughout my life, this has been the dilemma. This has been the problem, is I might get something or I might see something I want and think it's all I'll ever need or want, and I may receive it, but after the fact, I'll see what someone else has, and I would rather have what they have than what I have. I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one who's done this, am I? And see, I don't think there's anything wrong with wishing we had something different or wishing we had that or wanting something else. I think the problem comes in for us when it shifts from wanting something to thinking we need something. When our wants become our needs and we can't tell the difference, when all of a sudden it, it, it consumes our hearts and our minds and our waking thoughts that I need that, whatever that may be, there's a four-letter word that describes it, honestly, probably the most destructive four-letter word. It's envy. See, envy is something that seeps into our lives. It consumes us. It takes over in places where we don't necessarily want it to be, but it becomes something that drives us in our thinking. It takes over our heart. See, it's not that we're in competition with stuff or with other people necessarily, but we find ourselves wanting what they have because we really do think the grass is greener on the other side. And maybe your neighbor's grass is greener. It's probably because they water and fertilize it. But there's a phrase we use when we try to describe this understanding. We say, keeping up with the Joneses. Right? I don't know who the Joneses are, but they have really cool stuff. <laughs> Sweet house and nice cars. Their kids are so well-dressed and the smartest kids in school. I don't know who they are, but I know all of us have sought to be like the Joneses. I had dinner with someone a while back and um, kind of struggled with this, and they've acknowledged it before, and so they made a point of spending a few minutes talking about their new phone that they'd already ordered. It was at home. They said to transfer everything to it. Not that there's anything wrong with a new phone. 
nothing wrong with being excited about something you have gotten. The issue becomes when what I have has to be better than what they have. The issue comes in when it becomes this competition that my stuff has to be better than their stuff. And, and even sometimes it becomes to the place where not only does my stuff have to be better, but I don't want them to have anything as good as mine. This is envy. And maybe envy looks different because maybe your envy was kind of like envy was sometimes for me. I remember a time in my life when I was benched playing basketball and, and I kind of hoped that guys either got hurt or couldn't show up and I could play. It's envy, it's destructive, right? You should want the best for them. Envy is, isn't that I want to play. There's nothing wrong with wanting to do something but to want someone else to fail so that we can receive something. That's different. See, envy has a few definitions, and so vocabulary.com defines envy this way, wanting what someone else has and resenting them for having it. Merriam-Webster defines envy as this, the feeling of wanting to have what someone else has, period. But I like this definition the best from dictionary.com, a feeling of discontent or covetousness with regards to another's fill-in-the-blank. Envy is not necessarily used in the scriptures a lot. It's not a word that you see all throughout. But there's another word, a sister word, a synonym, if you will. And that word is covet. Covet is found in the scriptures. In fact, um, we're not going to try to distinguish between the two today of covet or envy. We're just going to say they're the same. So I'm going to invite you to stand uh, as I read from Exodus 20. Just one verse today. Uh, Exodus 20, verse 17. Exodus 20, verse 17, here's what the writer of Exodus says. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. I'm going to read that again just a little bit differently this time. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's husband or her business her animals or her children or anything that belongs to your neighbor. The word of the Lord. Be you may be seated. Now you may have realized that that verse, that one particular verse, is called the Ten Commandments, the last of the, the commandments, the ways of living that were given to Moses on Mount Sinai. And often we think of them as just a list of rules, a way of doing something. And so what we sometimes miss in that is that that this is happening after the Israelites have been enslaved in Egypt and they've been set free and they've been led out into the wilderness and God is shaping them to be a particular kind of people, a people that are called to be a blessing to the world. The problem comes in for them is that so often they, they have no characteristics that look different than anyone else. And so God desires to be in relationship with them in such a way that, that they would look different, their lives would be marked differently it be set-apart people to help bring others to a place to come to know him. And so these Ten Commandments, the first four, deal strictly with the relationship between humanity and God, just our relationship with God, making sure we recognize God as not an object, making sure we recognize God wants to be in relationship with us and what that should be driven by. And the last six commandments deal with our relationship with one another. So the first four deal with relationship with God, and the last six deal with relationship of us together. And so this last commandment, this idea that we don't covet, 
is a reflection of our relationship with the Father. It's a reflection of our relationship with God. It's this idea that God wants us to live a particular kind of life, a particular kind of way. And maybe a, a helpful illustration here is if we think in terms of marriage. So when we get married, there's some unspoken rules. You all know this, if you've ever been married or seen a marriage. There are certain things in certain homes that are not allowed to happen that you know that they're kind of deal breakers. There are rules, whether they're written down or not. So some of those are kind of easy, like don't have an affair. It's kind of an easy rule. Don't abuse your spouse. Makes sense. Don't take your spouse for granted. I mean, that one goes without saying, hopefully. So what we find is there are these unspoken rules, but, but if you break those rules, you kind of break the relationship. And I, I've yet to meet someone who says, hey, I think a great marriage would include abuse or affairs. I've yet to meet someone who says, I think that's a great marriage. I've always found the opposite to be true. Those never define a great marriage. Those maybe reflect a broken relationship. It doesn't mean that they can't be restored or healed or anything like that. But the reason we don't have affairs, the reason we don't do those things, isn't because there's a list of rules, but it's because we love that person. Right? Like, my goal is to to show my wife I cherish her, I care about her, that she matters to me. So I don't do those things because out of the loving relationship that we have together, we live in that way. This is the desire God has for us. This list of Ten Commandments isn't like this list of rules, don't ever do these things. It is that, but it's more. It's about our heart. It's about this relationship that God desires to have with us, much like we hope in a great marriage that we are defined by loving characteristics, so too does God desire for us to be in relationship with him. To covet what someone else has is to in many ways break our relationship either with him or with them. It's to make them an object, not a person. It's to erase their humanity. It's to recognize that in our coveting or in our envy, we make them less than they are. We don't see them as fully human, as equal. We see them as something less than us, something to be conquered, something to overcome. And so we understand envy and covet. We get them cognitively. They make sense. And they, they make even more sense in terms of consumerism. We get that. It's easy to understand. But consumerism really is just a symptom. You know, I, I, we could all talk about how Facebook, we all watch people's lives on Facebook, and we see the best of their life. Uh, there's a, a person with our church in Illinois, Sarah. I love when Sarah posts on Facebook because she posts the, the reality of being a mom of, of small children, posts all the dirty stories, like some of which are actually gross, but, but she posts the real-life stories of their family, and they make me laugh every time I read them because they're honest. But the truth is, none of us want to read on your Facebook feed or on our Facebook feed you posting about you fighting with your spouse, right? We don't want to read about how you're mad at your boss. We don't want to read necessarily what you had for lunch either, but, but, but we don't want to read those things because we want to know the best of life, right? And so we post the best of our pictures. We post the best of our lives. And so all of a sudden, we find ourselves envious of someone else's life. We see what they have. We see their beautiful spouse and their kids and their nice home and their nice car, and we want it. We deserve it. I should have it. I should have a better cell phone. (laughs) See, to covet or to envy is really a matter of our heart. So what happens is we find ourselves 
in places where we're discontent. The opposite of envy is contentment. Now, just like I did earlier, I want to give a caveat for what contentment is and isn't. Contentment doesn't mean that I can't say, you know, I'm in poor physical shape. I want to exercise more. I need to take better care of myself. That isn't, that isn't a lack of contentment. It isn't to say, I don't want to continue my education or try to get a better job or maybe buy a nice house. None of those things are issues necessarily of contentment. Contentment is a matter of the heart. So if I was going to give you the definition of envy, here's the definition of contentment. The state of being contented, obviously, or its satisfaction, ease of mind. It's two sisters' phones over here, by the way. I probably just embarrassed them both, and now we'll pay for it later. Contentment, though... Is a little different than, than not wanting something. Contentment matters with our heart. And so I'm going to read from the text that will kind of guide our next three weeks. The text in Philippians chapter 4. It's a text that Paul writes to the church in Philippi. It's a text that Paul writes from when he's in prison. And what I'm going to say this morning is this. It's the most misquoted scripture probably in the New Testament. And so here is what Paul writes to the church in Philippi. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, he says this, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Paul writes these words from prison. Paul writes these words after having been stoned, beaten, ridiculed, mocked. He writes them from a time when he used to be rich. It's an assumption most of us make that Paul was rich at one point in his life. And now he finds himself poor and in prison. And he writes to us about contentment. Now we all like the last verse. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. But we miss the whole first part. It's about contentment. And the secret that Paul has isn't really much of a secret. The secret is this. He knows Jesus. That Paul recognizes in knowing Jesus, he finds himself in a position, in a place where regardless of circumstances in life, he finds his heart strangely at peace. This strange contentment he finds in the middle of it. Because contentment is the opposite of envy. It's a matter of the heart. And when Jesus enters into our lives, when he comes into our hearts, our worldview changes. The way we understand God at work looks different than it did before. What Paul understands that we so often don't get is contentment doesn't matter whether we have a lot or whether we have a little, whether we're rich or whether we're poor, whether we live in a big house or in a cardboard box. Contentment is defined by our heart, by our relationship with the Father, so that envy no longer has dominion, so that discontent doesn't define us, but that we find contentment knowing who Jesus is. It's a secret that's not really a secret. Jesus himself, when he was asked what the greatest commandment was, said this, to love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So often we try to define um, 
our relationship with God, our relationship with the Father, and what we don't do. And so we create these lists of things we don't do. I don't do this, and I don't do that, and I don't do this, and I won't do that. Now the truth is we probably shouldn't do whatever those things are. But our relationship with God isn't about a list of things we don't do. Our relationship with God is about what Jesus invites us into to love God and love our neighbor as ourselves. It's really difficult to keep a list of rules. It's not as hard to be in a loving relationship with the Father. It's not as hard to be in a loving relationship with the one who gave his life up for us. It's not as hard to find our contentment in knowing Jesus. But it's really hard to keep a list of rules. Even though there's some things we shouldn't do that that we call sinful acts and those kinds of things. But it's really about knowing who God is and entering into a relationship with the one who seeks after us. So a couple questions is, what if we begin to find our lives by what we will do, not by what we won't? What if the overriding central theme of our lives was to love God and love other people? What if our life was more defined by contentment than envy? And what if our hearts were really transformed? And maybe today you're not really sure where you stand in this. Maybe today you're not really sure about finding contentment. You're not even sure about who Jesus is or whether you want to know him. But I want to share a story with you today. And I apologize that you have a pastor who likes sports because I don't know a lot of other stories. Um, but growing up, there was, a, there was an athlete that, that was popular in our home. In fact, he was so popular that we bought a, a basketball card of his. And my dad and I still argue about whose card it is, because I say I paid for it. He says he paid for it. Regardless, when he dies, I'll take it. Um, <laughs> so there was a movie I watched as a kid called Pistol, The Birth of a Legend. If you don't know who Pete Maravich is, I'm so sorry for you. Go home. It used to be on Netflix. Don't know if it's still there, but it's worth watching. And so Pete Maravich grew up, and he was the son of a basketball coach, and he was listed as one of the 50 greatest players of all time. In college, he, he set the record for most points scored per game at like 44 points a game, and in fact, he still has the record for most points scored in a career. And just so you know how impressive that is, he only played three years in college because in that day, freshmen weren't allowed to play. So that means guys who are playing four years today haven't even come close to touching his record. Not yet. I'm sure someday it'll happen. That was also like 40 years ago. See, Pete Maravich was such an impressive basketball player. He set these goals. Like one of his goals was to be the first player to make a million dollars playing basketball. He wasn't the first to make a million playing basketball, but he was the first to receive a million dollar contract straight out of college. He's an NBA all-star, led the NBA in scoring. Um, If it wasn't, wasn't for injuries, who knows what he would have done later even in his career. So he had to retire at the age of 33. The year he retired... He retired from the Boston Celtics, and that was the year they ended up winning the title later that year. So he would have won the one thing that he set a goal for he never reached. But at the end of Pete Maravich's career, it would seem as if everything is picturesque in his life, except for his mother uh, died. um, She drank herself to death. She became an alcoholic when he was in college, and so he would come home and find bottles hidden in like lampshades and all kinds of stuff. Pete himself became an alcoholic, and, and uh, after he retired at 33 years of age, he didn't know what to do with his life. His whole life had been focused on one singular thing, to be a basketball player. And so he told others he was trying to find the meaning of life, and so he spent two years as a recluse. He just buried himself in his own home and didn't leave. Took up Taekwondo, hoping he'd find answers there. He started practicing yoga. He tried becoming a Hindu. 
He looked into being a vegetarian. I hope that one didn't take. <laughs> Studied UFOs. And he read a book from a Catholic priest. And eventually he found himself entering into a relationship with Jesus. He had everything you could possibly want. He had the world at his fingertips. Everyone adored him. Everyone thought he was phenomenal. And he was. He was one of the greatest basketball players to ever play the game. He had everything that we would ever want. But he didn't have contentment. He was fully discontented. And so one of the the lines that he gave after he gave his life to Jesus was this. That I want to be remembered as a Christian. A person that serves Jesus to the utmost. Not as a basketball player. Pete Maverick gave his life to Jesus at 35. He died at the age of 40. A massive heart failure playing pickup basketball at Pasadena First Church of the Nazarene in Pasadena, California. And actually, James Dobson was playing with him at the time. Died at 40. Gave five years to the Lord. He wasn't necessarily defined by envy. We were all envious of his life. He wanted to be defined by what the rest of us define him as, as a great basketball player. He wanted to be defined by loving Jesus. See, I, I think sometimes what we get wrong is we think that, that God wants us to get rid of all of our passions, all of our desires, all of our loves, all the things that we enjoy. But the reality is what he wants to do is, is what he did in Pete Maravich's life. He took those passions and he turned them into ways for him to give back to the world. Now, if you love sports, you don't have to quit liking sports. If you like film, you don't have to quit liking film. If you like music, you don't have to quit liking music. But how do we transition these things and repurpose them so that contentment is what we find in them and our hearts are turned towards Christ? The opposite of envy is contentment. The only way to find contentment is to know Jesus find ourselves searching and seeking and trying to find the answers, but contentment and envy are heart issues. The heart issues. Do not covet your neighbor, their stuff, their spouse, anything they have. Find yourself in contentment because of your relationship with God that's defined by love and your relationship with other people that's defined by love. It's a heart issue, not a stuff issue. God so desperately desires for us to have our hearts contented in places of peace that regardless of our circumstances, we want the best for others. If we love God and we love other people, we don't envy other people. We may want different stuff. We may want nicer stuff. We may want better jobs. That isn't necessarily wrong, but we don't want them at the expense of someone else or at the expense of our relationship with God. We don't want them at the expense of our families. We don't want what they have. We don't envy them. We don't desire for them to fail so that we can succeed. That is the definition of sin, not the definition of love. What God so desperately desires for you and I is for us to find our hope, our contentment in Him. That as Paul writes, regardless of our circumstances, whether we're rich or poor, whether we're hungry or well-fed, that we'll know the secret that we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. 
I want you to stand with me this morning as the praise team comes, and we're going to sing the song In Christ Alone again this morning. And so um, one of the things that we sometimes do, we sometimes invite people to respond, and, and you can always come forward and yield if you would like to do that, but I'm going to ask as I pray and as we sing, or as I pray, that if that I'll give you a moment to, to just raise your hand and say, God, I oh, oh. sometimes envy and covetousness kind of defines my life, and I don't want it to. All my life divine be defined by love for you and love for others. So Father, today, will you help me in my heart? Will your spirit enter in in such a way that I won't be full of discontent? That I won't be full of covetousness. That I won't be full of envy. But I'll be filled with the love that says, I want to love you and I love others and I want to find peace in my life. Father, this morning, we pray that you'll be with us in these moments, that you'll help us to come to know you more and more. that every aspect of our lives would be yours, that we would not be discontent, but we'd find contentment, that we wouldn't be defined by envy, but we would be defined by love. That we'd find hope in the matter, and no matter what the circumstances may be. And so this morning, Lord, some of us need to say to you that I don't want to be envious. That I don't want to be filled with covetousness. So I challenge each of us that if that's you, just raise your hand and say, God, I... I I want to be defined by love. I don't want to be defined by what others have, but I want to be defined by you. Peace that Paul can write of that when he's in prison, that whenever he's been beaten and shipwrecked and stoned, that he can say, I know the secret to contentment. It's Jesus. So Father, may our lives be defined by you. May we truly find our hope in Christ.